This is episode 56 of the Syracuse Sports Podcast. Thanks for coming along for the ride. My name is Brent Dax. You can find the Syracuse Sports Podcast on Syracuse.com, and we do distribute it on social media, but the best way to get new episodes is to subscribe. Make sure you hit iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. Hit that subscribe button. And when we do a new episode of the Syracuse Sports Podcast, we'll be right there wherever you listen to your podcasts on your time. Joining me today are Scott Petoniak and Rick Burton, the authors of Forever Orange, the story of Syracuse University. Scott, a nationally honored columnist, best-selling author of more than 25 different books, and Syracuse alum, along with Rick, an endowed professor of sports management at the David Falk School at Syracuse University, a 1980 graduate of the Newhouse School of Communications, former writer here for the Post Standard, and the two gentlemen who literally wrote the book on Syracuse University with its upcoming 150th anniversary. It is a must-have for anyone that cares about Syracuse University on any level. Scott and Rick told some great stories about some things you certainly do know, but I'm sure some things you don't about the history of Syracuse University. And this being a sports podcast, certainly we got into the sports history of Syracuse as well. Forever Orange is available for purchase at press.syr.edu at the SU Bookstore and certainly can be ordered from your favorite bookstore and online from Amazon and Barnes & Noble. Sit back and enjoy the conversation. Rick Burton, Scott Petoniak on Forever Orange, the story of Syracuse University. 150 years. That's a good occasion to write a big book like this. And it is an incredible book. It is a must-have for so many different people, no matter what your love and your passion for Syracuse University is, this is an absolute must-have story here. And I could just imagine the effort that went into this. So kind of take me through the process of how Forever Orange was born. Well, you know, I, I guess you could almost say that we didn't realize it at the time, Brent, but um, I, I guess we started researching this book back in the 1970s when we were students here. Now, Rick's younger than I am, and he'll be sure to tell you <laughs> tell you that. He's like three or four years younger. But um, when we were students here, and we were obviously profoundly influenced by the place. But the 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 formal um, start of the book actually began about four years ago. And uh, we had seen that, that special milestone number, 150, sesquicentennial. And uh, Rick and I had worked on a couple other projects. And uh, so I said, what do you think about collaborating on a uh, 150th anniversary book, and he was foolish enough to to say, yeah, let's go do this, and we were crazy enough, and he had you. we did it. Well, we yeah, you, yeah, he had me at hello, kind of, yeah, <laughs> I think uh, we knew all these little stories that we thought had never really been used in other books, and a lot of books that, historical, you know, books get really boring really fast, and, and what we didn't want to do, and, and I continue to give a lot of the credit to Scott, is he said, let's make this the story of Syracuse University, not the history. And I think there was a nuance there that made it, let's find all the really cool stuff and put that in play. It was amazing when I got this book. And it's it's a big book. It's, I guess, what you would describe as a coffee table book, right? right? And as I was going through it, there was so much I wanted to get to. And I kind of flipped through it once immediately. But then you find yourself going back. And my advice to you would be when you get this book is to absorb it, to take your time with it. As much as you want to look ahead, he's, oh, look at that cool picture. And, Rick, you've got the picture open right now. I mean, as a Bruce Springsteen fan, to know that the guy that took the photo that ended up being the cover art for Born to Run, Syracuse alum, and all these little things you find out as you go, as excited as you get, 
take your time with this and, and really, really absorb it. Appreciate you saying yeah. that. And you made the comment before we came on the air, if that's still the phrase, you know, that you need to make an investment in the book. And, and we're not talking about buying it as much as an investment in the stories because we think there's something in here for everybody. Yeah, we, um, you, you know, it's not a book that you read chronologically. I mean, you can get it and leaf through first and go like, wow, wow, wow. And then and then go back and pick out anything. You know, we've got a, we've got a separate chapter on sports because obviously that's a huge part of the history of the university and famous visitors and traditions. And, uh, you know, you mentioned about the Bruce Springsteen uh, Born to Run cover. We've got Syracuse and pop culture. So we wanted it to be kind of an entertaining book. We wanted it certainly to be informative. Um, and one of one of my most enjoyable parts uh, of the book was that in the middle, we decided to do 44 prominent alumni and, uh, and write thousand word essays on each of them. And there's just, we wanted to get a really good cross section of people. So yeah, we could have had 10 sportscasters. There's no question, you know, given the sportscaster you reputation, but we didn't want to do that. We didn't want to, we wanted to just, we wanted to take some world changing, industry changing people and put them in. And we went back and forth on that list. Like he's in, she's in, she's out he's out, you know, type thing. It was, it was, it was evolved over four years. Well, that's a nice number to use. But yeah. As you said, whoever number 45 is probably right. deserved to be there, but you right. had to cut it off right. at some point, right? Because right. there's so many famous alums from so many walks of life right. that have come through Syracuse University. So that had to be a tough process. It was extremely difficult. And, you know, people would wind up in other parts of the book who didn't make the cut or were there originally and so forth. One of the interesting things that, uh, you know, I loved about this is, you know, you, you stumble upon uh, different facts and, and whatever. And so 44, obviously, is the historic number, most historic number in Syracuse University history, certainly in sports and stuff, because starting with Jim Brown and then Ernie Davis, the first African-American to win the Heisman and Floyd Little and, and on and on. And they even, you know, they changed the zip code and the, the phone uh, exchange. Uh, exchange to it. But Little interesting factoid is Jim Brown, who is obviously one of the 44s that we feature in the uh, prominent alumni, he originally wanted number 33 when he shows up at Syracuse. Really? Because he had worn 33 at Manhasset High School where, you know, he was a, a tremendous athlete. He lettered, he had, a, he had 11 varsity letters uh, at Manhasset, was a great basketball player, baseball, lacrosse, and obviously football. So they didn't have 33 available. Somebody already had it. And and uh, the the uh, L Zach, the longtime equipment guy, knew that Jim Brown was going to be a running back, so he gave him a double digit number. He goes, here, take forty four. So otherwise, we would have had thirty three, which I'm glad we didn't <laughs> because we 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 left so many people out that we wanted to be in the forty four. You know, Rick Rick jokes like, what it could have been? Why not sixty yeah. seven or right. whatever? Yeah, just some random number. <laughs> Why not one hundred and fifty? Right. I mean, you guys could have gone that far. We could considering have, considering all the people that have gone. To and it would have been a right? massive yeah. book. Yeah. That you would have needed a special. <laughs> yeah. You would have got a hernia trying to pick this up. Yeah. You know, so. I can imagine, even though both of you gentlemen are very passionate about the university and know a lot about the university, you literally wrote the book about it, that there were things that you found out along the way that you said, either I didn't know that or I didn't remember that. Like, I was surprised. There's only been 12 chancellors in the history of Syracuse University. That is an incredible number considering... 150 years is approaching. What were some of those things that, as you went along the way, you were either reminded of or, or maybe didn't know? Well, one for me, and it, it actually came from Chancellor Severud, was that there had been a fire at Skytop 
and we had uh, Russian translators working up there in a Quonset hut, um, and there was a fire in the building, and it killed seven men uh, up on the Skytop campus, or what today is known as the Skytop campus. And for a long time, the rumor was that when the men went to escape, the doors had been barricaded from the outside. And they were doing uh, translations of um, Russian intercepts, as far as we can tell. And, and one of the interesting things was that there was an apparent agreement between the U.S. government and Syracuse University and the Syracuse police to not to discuss it, the deaths of these seven people, because it could tip off the Russians that we were actually doing this translation So when, when was this, Rick? This was the late 50s, uh, and I'm going to have to look it up, but it's that kind of thing. It was uh, During just, the Cold War. Yeah, during yeah. the Cold War, and uh, you have guys that die on campus in a fire, and it's a story that virtually no one we've met really knows about. Wow. To give you an example of that, like I lived at 152 Lamberth Lane on Skytop when I'm an upper-class student, and the plaque I, I saw, Rick, at a recent visit was, like, not far from where I lived. I never knew that. How about that? I was, like, right near where this, this uh, tragedy and mystery, mystery occurred. January 6th, 1959. Okay. So we're talking height of the Cold War. And, right. You know. Sputnik. Sputnik and, yep. and everything is happening here. That is, see, there you go. Yeah. That is fascinating stuff. And I think you're going to find a, a lot of stories like that as you go along here. So 150 is a big number. And when you go back to the beginning, I don't think there's a lot of people that realize, you know, how the university was founded and, and those first stories. I think it started off like, you know, rented space, space downtown the Syracuse, Meyer, right? Myers Building in downtown Syracuse, yeah, it was rented space. Um, the first building on campus was the Hall of Languages. Uh, George Comstock is the man at the, that donated the land. That was a hayfield up there. So what, the next time you go to the Carrier Dome and so forth, just think of this was like a desolate. And we have some photographs that we, we love in the book of, you know, there's just the Hall of Languages, the first building, which opened in 1873. So until that time, like, you know, they were downtown Syracuse. There was first class was something like 41 students. Uh, it was uh, $20 tuition a year, 40 or, or a semester and 40 a year. And there were seven female students in that first class, which was unusual. Syracuse was the first um, co-educational college in New York State and one of the first in the country. So, And that was part of their history was that they said right from the start, uh, you know, uh, uh, Bishop uh, uh, Jesse uh, Truesdale Peck said that this is going to be an open place to all, regardless of, you know, gender, race, ethnicity, um, creed, what, whatever. It's it's going to be an open uh, uh, campus here in university. Rick, when you look back at the history of Syracuse University, there's there's so many different ways we can go here, and it's all chronicled in the book, but we're all sports guys in this room, mm. right? Right from the beginning, and I, I will say this, not only is the book incredible, the photos just, just pop at you, and, and to see a football photo from 1890, the 1891 Syracuse baseball team. Like, it just, it, you guys have big smiles on your face. It does put a big smile on your face to think about that. And when you go through the years and chronicle the history of sports in Syracuse, what are those things that, that really that really grab you? I mean, we know the names, the Jim Browns sure. and the Carrier Domes and things like that. But I just wanted to ask you, what are those things that really grab you and define that? Well, I think a lot of books usually will focus on the 59 football team, the 2003 basketball team. 
uh, but we missed certain pieces of kind of the sports story. Uh, Scott knew that the New York Yankees logo, which has really, at this level, you know, nothing to do with Syracuse University, was designed by an SU alum. So when we got into that sports section, we were able to say, how can we have fun with this story? Let's put in the six-overtime box score. Let's get the Topps baseball card of Jim Constanti, who won the National League MVP, at a university where we no longer play organized baseball as a varsity sport, but we once were actually pretty good at it and generated some guys that went on to Major League Baseball. Uh, we wanted those stories to come to life and not just have it be 59 in 2003. That's what I really appreciate about it, because I think we learn a little bit more about those things that we know, but you learn a lot that you don't know. And one thing I didn't know is that you, th you think of this name, John Archbold, and what his influence was especially in the beginnings of the university. Not an alum, but somebody who was very passionate about the school, donated a lot of money to the school, and is such a central figure in it. And it's interesting that he didn't go to Syracuse. So where did that passion for Syracuse come from? Well, I, I think it, it came from his involvement with the Methodist Church. And in this, our, our, the roots at, of Syracuse University it was a Methodist university. And um, so he had a pastor uh, who uh, at his church in New York City, who uh, was was affiliated with Syracuse, and that kind of got the ball rolling here. But you're absolutely right. You know, people don't realize. Um, we think of our old Archbold Stadium is what you think of, but without without John Archbold, um, there is no 150th anniversary of Syracuse University. There is no Syracuse University. It would have gone under. Um, several times if he hadn't bailed them out. He was, you know, to, to, to talk about like in, in modern terms, like Phil Knight to the University of Oregon or, or T-Bone Pickens who just died and what he was to Oklahoma State. Um, uh, John Archbold was was the, the biggest benefactor in, in the history of this university. Well, and, and we have a photograph in the book that on the Hall of Languages, over the archway of one of the doors, is a recognition of John Archbold. And, and it's one of those things that people don't see anymore. So you've got the Barnes Center now at the Arch, and, and you know the name Archbold seems to be a little bit gone. Archbold Stadium isn't there anymore, but the stadium is built you know, on the footprint of Archbold Stadium. The Chancellor's residence was provided by John Archbold. So you, you start to get into all these fun pieces, but when we wrote the book, the, the issue for us was not to write this for the administrators, not to write it to be, let's say, politically correct, but to write it for the alums and to tell a full story. So there's some warts and all in this story as well. I wanted to ask you about that. What are some of those warts and some of those imperfections, if you will, through the years that, that really stand out when you were writing this book? Well, I mean, you know, we have photos in there from uh, the really tumultuous times of the anti-war movement, you know, in the late 60s, early 70s. We have a, a, a great photo of a huge protest on the quad with 5,000 students there. And then there's a photograph that someone had taken a, a spray paint can and sprayed, shut it down on the side of the Hall of Languages. So after Kent State, um, you know, Syracuse, like many colleges across across the country, was uh, very politically active and and you know did did take part in it and, and was shut down. So there, there's things like that, and then there, you know there's individuals. We have the, you know, we Vanessa Williams. We know about the scandal after she became the first African American to be crowned uh, Miss America and stuff. But it's it's a huge part of the story, and also it's a story. Her story is a story of redemption and how she came back from what would have killed most people's careers, 
she managed to come back and she winds up coming back 25 years later, gets her degree from Syracuse University and talks about that she wouldn't change anything in her life. Yes, she made mistakes and a huge mistake there that was extremely costly, but she grew from it and became this incredible uh, artist. Yeah, and I think if you did it in the sports vein, you could do the Syracuse 8 or Dave Megacy taking on the NFL uh, in the ways that he did. But we put in a great cover photograph from the Daily Orange of Chancellor Tolley actually caning a student on campus. A protester. Yeah, and, and so wow. we wanted to make sure that this book was truthful to what's really gone on. And we haven't always been perfect, but I think we've been amazing. And, and I think a lot of times we've learned from our mistakes. Well, you brought up the Syracuse 8 when Syracuse played Holy Cross recently. That was the last time that Syracuse had played them. And you go back to 1973, like there was legitimate discussion of shutting the program yes. down. Right. I mean, yeah. think about where they've come since then. And to, to think in the early 1970s, there was legit discussion about this has got to go. And, and what the Syracuse 8 stood up for and, and what they you know wanted to bring light to is incredible to think about. Yeah, and I think as as Rick said, you know, I, I think you look at things like nothing or nobody is perfect, nothing is perfect, um, but did you grow from it? Did you learn from it? And I think that we've seen examples of that. And certainly, you know, the interesting thing about the Syracuse 8 was that they were not only um, lobbying in, 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 you know, for African-American players, but for you know, the conditions that the white players were undergoing as well, like not having, you know, proper medical care and, and training and, and so forth. So so there was there was there was more to it there. There was a, an activism that went beyond just race in, in that case and stuff, you know. But, uh, you know, and you mentioned I, I when when I was on campus uh, in the in the mid 70s. Um, I graduated in 1977. There was still, you know, we, they were, Syracuse is among the dregs of college football. Uh, Frank Maloney had come in, but he was saddled with horrible, horrible facilities. They, it was so bad, Brent, that they, they would not show the recruits Archbolt Stadium <laughs> unless they requested it. There were rats in the locker room. I mean, I had a lot of friends who were on the football team. They told me, and, 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 you know, I co covered the team from, from time to time. And, uh, and, and Frank Maloney, who was kind of vilified toward the end or whatever because he kind of distanced himself from the 1959 team, but Frank Maloney and Jake Crowdhamel realized this program is going nowhere unless you get facilities. And they needed a new stadium. They looked out at the fairgrounds. They looked every other place here and there. And he finally decided, no, let's put it here. Let's shoehorn it where Archbold Stadium is. In, what, 1979, the poor team had to go and play every single game on the road. Great transition there, Scott, because <laughs> when you talk about Syracuse athletics, you draw a line pre-Carrier Dome, post-Carrier Dome. So you were there. You were a part of it in the 1970s. As you're describing how bad the facilities were, and, and here comes this building. So um, it's covered in the book, but, you know, for what you remember and, and what stands out to you about the process of the birth of the Carrier Dome and how that comes full circle, because that's faux pas to say now, yeah, right? Yeah. As the as the uh, improvements are happening and they're trying to get away from the Carrier name, but you know, as it stands right now, it's still on the building. We'll see what the future brings. But take me back to that time when you know the dome was born. Well, it's a transitional era for the university, and I actually covered the building of the dome, working for the Post Standard. And every day I had to file a story of what new construction component had been built in. And you really, as you say, you can draw that line. And you have to understand that there were a lot of people that were involved that overcame a lot of naysayers, a lot of people who doubted. 
Uh, and Jake Crowdhamill, I think, deserves an awful lot of credit and perhaps doesn't get as much in this book as he could have um, for understanding, like what Scott just said, that if Syracuse didn't make a move, it was going to get left, left so far behind that you wouldn't really want to keep football up. Now, how long does it take before we have a team that goes undefeated with Don McPherson at the helm, and all of a sudden you kind of have that pitch out to Michael Owens going around the left side, and you beat West Virginia kind of in the last second, and all of a sudden everyone is like, the Dome is a genius idea. Right. And and along those lines, too, and giving Jake Crowdhamill some, some love here, is let's not forget, he stuck with Dick McPherson. It wouldn't happen today. Like in today's world where, like, you know, you look look at Dave Dombrowski, right? What have you done for me lately? We'll see. Oh, you won the World Series last year. You won 108 games. Sorry. What did you do this year? Nothing. You're gone. And and Jake stuck with Mac through some of those five and six and four and seven, like five years. And I remember there was the sack Mac pack. They wanted to get rid of him. And Jake, being an old football coach, no, no, no. Things I can see. Things are turning. He stuck with him, uh, and we saw the results. And then, of course, he handed the ball off to Paul Pasqualoni. And you had, you know, really 15 years of of really glory times for not just football, but the basketball program, lacrosse programs. It was a it was really a golden age of Syracuse sports. I think there are people who graduated in 1987. Your basketball team goes to the Final Four <laughs> championship game. Your football team goes Same to building. a bowl game. Same and building. I think your lacrosse team wins a national championship. I think it's all right in that vicinity for that class. It's incredible. And that was when the run started for the lacrosse team. They won a title in 83, but it was really the, the arrival of the Gate Brothers right. the next year. Right. Now, we've made it 20 minutes into this podcast, and we've kind of buried the lead. Like, you can't do this. You can't say anything on a sports podcast and a book about the history of the university without saying the name Jim Beheim And Jim Beheim's influence on athletics, you brought up the Dome. Like, he didn't even want to go to the Carrier Dome, didn't want to go to the ACC when things happened. But, Scott, I mean, you've literally written a book mm-hmm. about Jim. You've known Jim. You've covered Jim through the years. And what he means to this university, I mean— you had 44. If we did a Mount Rushmore, okay, if you, oh, yeah. if you pared it down to four, like, he's on that he's, list. He's got to be, without question. And and it's interesting, you know, like, I, we, we talk about how bad the football program was, you know, like in the 70s or whatever. But, you know, uh, the when Beheim came here and stuff in, in 1962, along with this guy by the name of Dave Bing, uh, they were the laughing stock of college basketball. They had, like, two years before, I think they had lost – at that time, an NCAA record 27 consecutive games. They were just dreadful. And, you know, uh, Jim was smart enough to know how to get open, and 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 Dave Bing would find him. But w- one thing I will say about Jim, he stayed here and he never left. Now, there's, he certainly had some offers. Um, he certainly, I think, could have coached in the NBA and had success uh, in the NBA as well. But he once told me, you know, that the, uh, the, the grass isn't always necessarily greener on the other side of the fence. Um, and one of his former assistant coaches said, Jim's, uh, you know, there, there are coaches who are uh, go-getters and nomads, and then there are nesters. Jim's a nester. Uh, he found a, a place here that he thought he could win and compete for national championships and, and that sort of thing, and he stayed here. And You know, yeah, he could have got more money, but, you know, it's the old thing, you know, you know, from covering sports and stuff, like we see, like, oh, Brent, you you disrespected me because, you know, you're only offering me $23 million, you know, and you offered him <laughs> $23 million and, and and a dime or something. You're disrespecting. You know, again, again, how much money do you really need? And Jim, you know, Jim 
to his credit, has built you know an incredible program here. Um, you know, over you know, what, he's been here like five decades now and stuff like that uh, and beyond. And so, yeah, he's he's the face of the of the program. Yeah, you use Mount Rushmore, and I think that's a, a great metaphor. He, such a uh, you know, not only a great coach, but a commitment to the community uh, and the fact that he has stayed. Uh, you know, he doesn't make fun of the weather or make fun of the people or any, and he fills up the dome. And we now take it for granted that there's 35,000 in the dome for a Duke game. Um, he has been the face of the university in so many ways. And, and I think he has always been incredibly loyal to the place. And, and a lot of people leave and he didn't. And so props to him, I say. Gentlemen, I can't wait to absorb the book more, take my time with it. Incredible effort. I, I am just so thrilled that you guys did this because it, it will not only tell the tale, the story of Syracuse University and capture it. I think future generations are going to look back on this and they're going to read this book and they're going to get a true appreciation of what Syracuse University is. Thank you for doing this. Uh, one last thing before we go. How do we get it? And I know you guys are going to be doing some signings yeah, coming up, so yeah. tell so, me about that. Fill the, fill the listeners in, well, Scott. You, you can go to Syracuse University Press. Um, I also think it's it's soon going to be available in Barnes & Noble here in, you know, in, in DeWitt. Um, uh, we're going to be doing a signing on December 14th from 1 o'clock to 3. We're also just doing Just in a, time for Christmas. Just everybody. in time for Christmas. If you need it before, then you can't wait. We're uh, during uh, family weekend coming up here uh, the Friday of the pick game from uh, 4 to 5.30 at the Syracuse University Bookstore. We're doing it as well. You can get it online, Amazon, uh, any place that you normally get a book and stuff. But uh and like you said, it was a coffee table book. And yeah, you if you want afterwards, you can put some four legs on it and you'll have yourself a little coffee table. <laughs> Gentlemen, thank you so much. Thanks, Brent. Thanks, Brent. Thanks for listening to episode 56 of the Syracuse Sports Podcast. And my thanks to Rick Burton and Scott Petoniak for joining us as our guests today. Don't forget you can get Forever Orange, the story of Syracuse University at press.syr.edu, the SU Bookstore, your favorite bookstore, and through Amazon and Barnes & Noble, a certain must-have for anyone that cares about Syracuse University. That's episode 56. Thank you so much for joining us today. Don't forget to subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts. My name is Brent Dax. We'll talk to you next time.